Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you very much, praise team. What a wonderful way to uh, start our Sunday morning um, singing those songs of worship and praise. Thank you very much, especially to Arnie and Katie for, uh, for leading that for us. Well, for those of you who know me, um, but the, for those who, who don't, my name is Brian Miller. I'm one of the elders here. And my wife and I, Esther, we uh, regularly are involved with Hockey Ministries International and uh, working with their summer camp programs in the summer during uh, my off-season. Um, so, uh, I mean, this isn't part of my sermon, but I just thought I should give you an update. We were, uh, usually, we usually, uh, let's get the words going here, uh, often for the last several years, we've been doing two camps. Unfortunately, the camp in Brantford uh, was unable to run this year, and so we uh, only did the camp in Moncton, and that was a couple weeks ago. And it was a real blessing, uh, our travel down there, um, back and forth. Uh, two of our kids live down there now, so we got visit time in with uh, Alicia. little side note for those who know Alicia, Alicia's expecting. So uh, we'll uh, have our fourth grandchild um, either late October, early November. Her due date's November 2nd. Um, and the, uh, the camp, I believe we had approximately... Uh, 56 kids uh, at camp, uh, boys and girls, uh, for the hockey camp. And uh, the, the way the camp structures, you know, it's focused around hockey, but it is uh, very much focused around teaching the kids the God of Word and presenting the gospel message. And um, uh, just to keep things short, I can share more details if you want. But we give the opportunity on several of those nights after the evening chapel program for kids to stay behind and either ask more questions or to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And this year we had, I believe it was 34 kids stay behind uh, over those few nights that we gave that invitation either to uh, uh, solidify a decision that they made or for the first time ask the Lord uh, as their Savior. So what a blessing that was and I thought I would uh, share that with you because I know many of you have been uh, praying for the hockey camps, but for also other Christian camps uh, that are uh, going on right now. It's a, an amazing opportunity uh, to share the gospel message this summer camps. I'm not sure if you remember. I'm not sure if you like Snickers. Snickers started a campaign in 2010. And once I say it, you'll probably remember. You're not you when you're hungry. Remember that? Yeah. It was a very successful campaign uh, for Snickers. Um, in the first year of running that, cam- that campaign, their sales increased by 15.9%. And in the chocolate market, which is a very fickle, uh, spontaneous market, that was huge for them. One of the things they did was they had done some research prior to that, and they had, and the research had showed that people who bought a chocolate bar one year, or not just a chocolate, bought a Snickers bar specifically, would not necessarily buy a Snickers bar the following year. It's a very emotional, spontaneous uh, for a lot of people, and so I think they said actually 50% of people who bought a Snickers one year would not buy a Snickers the following year. 
And so they wanted to grab a bigger chunk of the market. They wanted to be recognized. When you walked into that convenience store or grocery store and you looked at all those you know, multiple you know, options for chocolate or chocolate bars, they wanted you to be looking for a Snickers. And this campaign was what did it for them for many years. They launched that campaign in, in 58 different markets and their sales increased in 56 of those 58 markets by this campaign. And if, re, if you remember the Snickers commercials, um, they ran for, for many years, I think it was about six years they ran this campaign. But the first one they launched at the Super Bowl in 2010, and what it was, it was a group of young guys playing football. And then all of a sudden, you see Betty White in the middle of this field, and she, uh, and you're going, Betty White, and all of a sudden, some guy comes through and just tackles her, smokes her down to the ground. Do you remember that? It was, you know, the first time you saw it, I was like, what is going on here? I hope that's not the real Betty White, right? Like, I hope it's computer generated. Um, and then, you know, they, they go off from that and, you know, someone offers Betty White a Snickers bar because they say, you're not you when you're hungry. And she takes a bite and then she turns into Mike, who's a 20-year, you know, mid-20-year-old guy, who's actually part of the thing, but, you know, they had been chirping him saying, you know, you're awful today, you're playing like Betty White, and uh, so, so quite a funny commercial, and they did many of those, if you remember, Mr. Bean did a commercial, you know, for them, you know, as a samurai warrior, you know, same type of thing, and they had a lot of success and a lot of promotion, because when you're hungry, when I'm hungry, I'm not myself, and that's a universal truth, and so they wanted to play off that and it worked for them because they presented themselves as the solution to that problem. You're not you when you're hungry. Well, here, grab a Snickers bar. That's the solution to get rid of your hunger so you're you again. And it was so successful, and you can't get them anymore, but the, it was so successful that they actually took the Snickers name right off the chocolate bar. Do you remember that? remember walking in and seeing a Snickers bar? It would have had uh, hangry on it or, or grumpy or cranky or princess or sleepy. I'm not sure if you remember seeing those, but they actually were so successful, they could take the name Snickers off their bar. And so you could, you know, you could grab a chocolate bar that had princess on it, walk up to a coworker and go, here, eat that, right? You know, you could send that, that subtle mus- message, but, but be funny. But probably my, my favorite of all those names on there was Wimpy. I never did it, but there were several people I would have liked to have bought a Wimpy chocolate bar and handed it to them at certain times, especially in the hockey world. Let's pray this morning and commit our time. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are wonderful, and we come here this morning and we ask you, Lord, to calm our hearts, to calm our minds, to put aside the stresses and the worries of our everyday life and just to enjoy you. Enjoy being in your presence here at Auburn and online. Lord, as we've sang songs of praise to you this morning, as we've read from your word, and now as we dive into the book of James, Lord, speak to us. Speak to us in the way that we need to be met, our needs, 
challenge us, but ultimately may this whole morning be to your honor and glory, Lord. So we just ask a blessing on this time and we pray for the activeness of your Holy Spirit in each of us to teach us what we need to hear from your word this morning. Amen. So if you would turn to James chapter 4. We're in a series on the book of James, if you've been joining us, uh, either online or in person or a bit of both. And uh, we've entitled it, A Faith That Works. And we're now on chapter 4 here this morning, and we're going to dive into verses 1 through 5. And as we dive into this, as we're looking at these verses... We aren't diving into a new topic. James is just kind of shifting. We're, we're following along uh, a pattern here as we move out of three into four. But let me just say at this point, I want you to try and remember this as we work through these verses this morning. You are not you when you're spiritually hungry. So let's read James Four, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Now, two weeks ago, Paul Volk unpacked uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And much of that, James was talking about the tongue and how to control the tongue in a way that's positive. And Paul did a great job of challenging us on ways to tame our tongue and keep it under control, according to James. And last week, Pastor Al, he went through verses 13 through 18 uh, of chapter 3. And we learned a lot about wisdom from Pastor Al and, and the words there, and we're challenged with the, uh, of trying to live a pleasing life in God's eyes. <clears throat> Why would James feel the need to address these issues? Well, it seems like there was problems not only in their community, but within the, in the tight community of the Christians at that time. The followers of the way, the believers of Jesus Christ, weren't acting the way James felt that they should be behaving and, and, and the way they'd been taught. And so he, he takes the challenge on to address, to help correct and guide these Christians. But the problems seem to have been 
really severe, like really significant. I mean, in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3, he talks about the need for peace. He actually talks about the need for peacemakers amongst the people. So in verse 4 we read, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? James, like, stop and think about it. He's saying there's fights. There's, there's quarrels brought on by selfishness and unsatisfaction. Jealousy, envy are causing these people to get like this. Chapter, I mean, verse 2, you covet. You kill? Like seriously, you kill? I mean, these are some strong action words that he's put in here. And what we don't really know is how literal or figurative they are, but I, I think for the most part, we have to take them literal, what he's talking about here. You know, I mean, fights. He's talking, there's fights among the Christians. I mean, what is a fight? Punching? Wrestling? Pushing and shoving? Really? Among who he was earlier calling brothers and sisters? Quarrels. Verbal fighting. Insults. Talking behind the back. Right? Very heated, very emotional. He doesn't say there's disagreements. He's saying there's quarrels and fights. Like, this is serious stuff. And then he, what's he say? He says, you covet. Well, for them especially, maybe we are a little less sensitive to it. Thou shall not covet. You shall not covet. One of the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, you are coveting. You're breaking the Ten Commandments. And then, kill? Like, we want to soften that down and go, no. It couldn't come to that, could it? That someone actually killed somebody in amongst the brothers and sisters over selfishness? Jealousy? But, I mean, these are things that happen with passion, right? Have you heard the term crime of passion? Right? It's very common in today's judicial system. And people who get charged with a crime of passion, often it's because it actually took them to the point of murdering people. And then one of the most common lines of defense is temporary insanity. The passion can go so extreme for some people that they actually kill the person involved with it. It's incredible. And James is talking about this within the Christian community. How can this be a part of our Christian community, these type of things? It's an age-old question. I want to read a quote here that Douglas Moo included in his commentary on James. 
He wrote, the quarrels of James Day have too often marred the Christian church. And he says, the 17th century Jewish philosopher Spinoza observed, and this is a quote of his, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. As a Christian, as a member of this church, as an elder, those are hurtful words. Those are not nice words to read how some people view and see the church at large, people within the church. But for people to act this way, something has to be lacking deep inside. In their hearts, in their souls, there needs to be a lacking for these type of things to occur. People who behave like that, they, need, they, they have to be spiritually hungry deep inside. And God didn't make you or make me to act like this. To be fighting, to be quarreling, to be jealous, to be coveting. Jesus was sent to this earth to cleanse us from our sins, to help us put off our old selves and live more righteous, more like God, and a lot less like our old sinful natures. Jesus is supposed to help us be more content, more righteous, more holy, to be able to control our tongues So why aren't we? In general, as the church, the Christian church at large, why aren't we better at that? Second part of verse 2, we read, you do not have because you do not ask God. Verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You don't have, I don't have, why? Because we don't ask. Or if we do ask, we're not asking properly. Yes, you can say a wrong prayer. And you can say a wrong prayer due to the motives behind your requests. When is the last time that you ask God for more wisdom? You ask God to help you be more righteous, to seek after, to desire to be a more righteous person. When is the last time you ask God, or I ask God, that my actions today 
would be to His glory, would lead people towards Him, to shine, to behave the way that He wants me to, not behave the way I want to. I know I've been guilty of it, and I'm, I'm sure many others would say they have too, of slipping into requests that are focused on mostly my financial situation, benefiting me, promoting me. It's praying wrong. Our focus needs to be on the glory of God. In my research, I came across an interesting uh, quote of Billy Graham's. And this one really struck me. It really challenged me. Billy Graham is quoted as saying, we should not pray for God to be on our side, but pray that we might be on God's side. Let me say that one more time. We should not pray for God to be on our side, but pray that we may be on God's side. James is being very serious in what he's writing here. He's addressing a serious topic and he's not happy about it and he's trying to provide awareness, I think one, and two is correction. And he hits hard in verse four here. Look at me, look, look at verse four. You adulterous people. Earlier we were reading, he was calling them brothers and sisters. Right? Where did that warm fuzzy go? He's saying, you adulterous, you adulterous people. Wow. He's not holding back at all. And if you don't understand the seriousness, because you know, we're 2,000 years removed, Leviticus, the Leviticus laws, chapter 20, verse 10, this is what the law about adultery was. That who he's writing to would have been very familiar with these Leviticus laws. He says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Yikes. He's just called them adulterous. And that's the punishment for adultery. But you know what? He wasn't accusing, and adultery may have been happening, but in this way, he wasn't actually accusing them of adultery with other people. He's saying, you're being adulterous to God. And you say, adulterous to God, how can that be? Well, throughout Scripture, and we're going to hit a few, and you can go with me or just listen God refers to himself as a bridegroom and us as his bride. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 54, verse 5 and 6, we read from Isaiah, For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. 
a bit of a theme for Isaiah. Flip over to chapter 62. Isaiah writes in chapter 5, we read, As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder, capital B, marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Guess what? Jesus, Jesus continues that theme. It is so important that Jesus makes a reference to that. In Matthew 9, verse 15, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. They will, then they will fast. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom right there in front of everybody. This is an important picture for God, for Jesus, that we grasp this relationship of God being like our bridegroom and us individually and collectively as a church being God's bride. Verse 4 continues, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So again, some strong words there. He's saying, choose God or choose the world. You choose the world's way, and you're choosing to be an enemy of God. But we're encouraged to choose friendship and intimacy with God, not friendship and intimacy with the world. I mean, Jesus is recorded as saying in Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve two masters. Either you're going to love one and hate the other or love the other and hate the other. You, you, you can't serve two. You can only truly love and serve one master. Matthew 12, Matthew 16, Jesus referred to them as a wicked and adulterous generation. And that was adulterous with the relationship with God that he was referring to. And we need to think about the time and day that this stuff was written because in the Hellenistic world, Friendship was a little different than what we call friendship. We, we often have friendship as kind of a casual term. Back then, friendship was a very intimate term. If you called somebody your friend, well, you shared things with them. You shared your possessions. You shared your life. It was a tight, intimate relationship when you said, John is my friend. When you, when me, when any of us are spiritually hungry, we're not who God intended us to be. We don't live the way God intended us to live in this world when we have a spiritual hunger and we're not satisfied. And it would seem, because of what James is writing, 
this was a big enough issue. There was enough people that were spiritually hungry that he needed to address this. He needed to point it out to people. Just like those Snickers commercials, people didn't realize they were hungry until somebody pointed it out to them and provided them with some substance. And this is what James is doing. He's trying to point out to us, hey, examine your life. Hey, you're acting the wrong way. It's because you're not being satisfied and living close with God. Verse 5. Now, Douglas Moo in his commentary states that this verse is one of the most challenging verses in all the New Testament to translate into English. Now, it'd be nice if translating from one language to another was simple and easy. Right, Roy and Rose? You want to know how hard it is translating the, the Greek and the Hebrew uh, into you know, the English language or, or any other language? I, I'm sure that uh, um, Rose and Roy have got many stories that you know, could tell you just how difficult it is to translate the Bible from one language in, into another. And so we've got that situation here with verse 5. And the two main interpretations, one is basically that James is referring to God's jealousy. Uh, it's referring to God's jealousy for his people. The other way to translate it would be to say that James is referring to the human tendency to be envious or jealous. And if you've, you know, if you've got the digital Bible, you can switch to different translations pretty quickly and easily, and, and you can see how different translations have uh, translated it in one or two of those different ways. But having based the message this morning mainly on the NIV, and we're going to unpack it the way that the NIV does, and that's the divine jealousy trans, uh, uh, translation of which Douglas Moo also supports that one. So let's read verse 5 here. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he, God, jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? This should excite us a little bit. This is some good news. That God has made us in his image. He's placed a soul inside of us and we're special to him because of that. He loves us so much that he is jealous for us to have an active relationship with him. To not be spiritually hungry but to be spiritually fed by him God has a righteous jealousy for each one of us. And that should be, after the other verses we went through, this should be something that now kind of puts a smile on our face, gives us a motivation, gives us an encouragement that God loves us that much that he can be described as being jealous. 
Now, jealous is interesting in the English language because jealous is typically kind of a negative term, right? It's got a negative connotation to it. It's defined as resentment against a rival, right? Which in the spiritual world, it's God and his rival is Satan. So it's a right definition because God has a jealousy for our soul versus Satan having the desire for our souls. And the term jealousy most often has a very intimate connection with it. Jealousy is very often the term used to describe something between a husband and a wife, between two people. That's the use. So when I was looking at this, my mind went more in English to zeal. Right? Would it be accurate to say you know, more so zeal, because to me, zeal has more of a positive connotation. Zeal talks about a passion, right? Zeal talks about forever for a person or a cause or an object. So maybe a good way to think about it is we have a zealous, jealous God. God loves you He loves me with a deep, longing passion. And that should encourage us and is something we should reflect back to when we're feeling discouraged, when we're feeling maybe far off in our relationship, that we know that God doesn't change His zealous and jealous desire to be connected with us, to spend time with us. God loves you. He loves me. But is God enough? I think that's kind of the question on a daily basis that we should ask. Is God enough for me today or am I going to veer off and entertain other things in this world that are a friend of this world? So, what about a checklist? How do I know if I'm being, let's say, spiritually hungry? How do I know if I'm slowly walking away from God, involved in things that would make... God, think that we're enemies and not friends. Well, for some of you, you, you probably read this many times in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19. These are, the, these are the negative things. These are the things that spiritually hungry people participate in. The acts of the flesh. And Paul says they're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Boy, those can be sweet. And really feel, I really feel 
a momentary hunger within your soul. But just like chocolate, it's not lasting. It doesn't last. When you fill a hunger with chocolate, that energy, that sugar gets burned off so quick. So, so quick. And leaves you wanting more. Right? You're, you're hungry, you're satisfied, but now you're hungry again in, in short order, in short term. And so you go back to that sweetness so easily. But what if we go down to verse 22? Verse 22 says, but the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God is love, it's joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's a checklist for you. So when you're hungry, which are you turning to? Because the fruit of the Spirit is sweet, but it's a longer-lasting satisfaction than you'll ever get from the fruits of the world, the chocolates of the world. Is God enough? It's a good question for me on a daily basis, and I hope maybe for you too. My encouragement is is let's spend time feasting with God on the lasting substance of His love, His joy, His peace. So let me encourage you, read your Bible on a regular basis. Dive into God's Word here. There's so much in here for us on a daily basis. Read it. Study it. Talk with other people about it. Pray. Talk to God on a regular basis. I know I've kicked myself in the butt days. It's like, wow, it's almost the end of the day and I don't know if I've really stopped to pray because I had to do this, I had to do that, I had to do... And when we pray, let's pray. Let's pray for others. Let's focus a lot less on ourselves and the temporary things of this life and pray for that eternal mindset. A mindset like 34 kids giving their life to Christ. Those are things we should pray for. Fellowship. Fellowship with people, all people, but make sure you fellowship with people who love God. If you love God, it's a great connection. If you have not yet asked Christ to be your Savior, I hope there are some people in your life that you know that they love God. And I encourage you, spend some time with them and see where a relationship with somebody else who loves God goes. So I'll leave you with this, this question. I'll leave myself with this question. 
Is a zealous, jealous God enough for you? Thank you.